Superhumanize. Accelerated Evolution. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are going to talk about life force. We are going to take a deep dive into how to connect between the human realm and the divine. Throughout the ages, philosophers and sages, seekers and spiritual leaders, artists and scientists have sought, and in a few instances also taught, how to connect with the divine. There are different ways to do so, and a very powerful one is also one that has been suppressed in many cultures and times. I'm talking about the concept and expression of eros. Eros is much more than sexual love or desire. Eros is a bridge to the sublime and can help achieve transcendence. And it is also intimately tied to the power of feminine sexuality, which coincidentally also has been suppressed for millennia. Today's guest, Dr. Joanna Kujawa, has gone on a quest to unveil the mystery and history of Eros and find an answer to some intriguing questions in her book, The Other Goddess, Mary Magdalene and the Goddesses of Eros and Secret Knowledge. Is there a lineage of goddesses that claims the evolutionary power of female sexuality? And if so, why were they pushed to the shadows and demeaned as harlots? Was Mary Magdalene one of them? And what were her teachings? Looking into esoteric traditions that celebrated the goddess and her art of sexual alchemy, Dr. Kujawa set out on a detective journey and discovered that Mary Magdalene stands at the center of this investigation. And whether looking at Mary Magdalene, Sophia, Aphrodite, Inanna, Hathor, Isis, or the goddesses of esoteric Hinduism, Dr. Kujawa's findings about the archetype of the other goddess as the bearer of the mysteries of sexual alchemy that ends the division between sexuality and spirituality are not only fascinating, but have the potential to redefine how we think and how we express spiritually and sexually. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Joanna, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. I have been looking so forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation because we just had a chat before recording. It looks really good. <laughs> it looks yeah, really good. I could have just kept chatting with you. And that's no. like, oh, we need to do a podcast. And that's so wonderful. I love that. Just great energy that emanates from you. And talking about energy, there's something I would like to ask you first. And that is something that comes up in when I did research about you and about your, your biography. 
And you are, or you also call yourself a spiritual detective. Can you explain to us what that is? <laughs> yes, a spiritual detective. I'm not sure how it came to me, but I used to have a blog before I wrote my book, We Are the Goddess. And then I try to place myself somehow because I realize that there are lots of women who are writing about the goddess principle or the goddess archetype. And some of them are very, very devotional, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? Some of them are very devotional. And I actually do not necessarily feel like that. I'm more interested in embodying the energy, which I think we really have to embody this different form of energy and intelligence individually and collectively. We have to uplift this energy and worship is one of the ways, but not the only way. And also I felt the more I was teaching the goddess and especially Mary Magdalene because of my background, I thought that the goddess was silenced on purpose. And mm. by the goddess, I don't really mean some necessarily an archetype or a person or energy, or perhaps energy is the closest to this, but a part of who we are, a part of cosmic consciousness. And that I just felt that I need to investigate it. So I said, okay, I'm just going to use my academic skills, but also my spiritual experience and spiritual experience of other people, which was really powerful on many levels. And other people experienced this as well. So it's not just academic, but I decided I'm not doing it this way. And I'm going to use this skill to actually investigate what happened. How can we reclaim this energy which I believe that I, nowadays we really need it more than ever because I think that we are going in a completely wrong direction with technology and everything. I'm not against technology, but there are certain things that have to be done first. So we can have a, maybe a disagreement here or maybe not a, a discussion. So I started to investigate. And then when I started to investigate, I realized that, yes, that this feminine or goddess energy, which is also a different form of intelligence, but also very erotic in its nature. But I want to explain later maybe the difference between sexual and erotic. Although they are not the different, but there's a different energy and a level about them. Was suppressed. And instead of whinging, this was suppressed. I thought, okay, we may, they suppressed it whoever they are, because there is an immense potential and somebody was afraid of this potential. And this potential of this energy is present in both women and men, but women carry this energy. Women embody this energy and then can gift it to a man. And this is what esoteric, especially esoteric tantric traditions teach. So you are the, as a feminine, as a woman, you carry this energy and you can bestow it on, on a man as well. And for some reason, this energy, maybe because of fear of the power of this energy, or maybe that it would have to restructure the whole social system in which we live for the last few millennia, was suppressed. Mm -hmm. I also had a sense of injustice. And I said, no. And there were, there were, of course, examples of divine feminine through the ages. But when you look at them, whether it is Virgin Mary and Catholicism, and I was brought up as a Catholic, as from the book, or Juan Yin, or all of these beautiful goddesses, but they were kind of the sexualized, and they were somehow almost subservient to the masculine. They were created to console the masculine who was also traumatized by the patriarchy. Because who sends young men to war? 
if not patriarchy. So it's not about women and men. It is about how we right. structure our universe at the moment and so on. So that's why it's a long answer to a short question. So that's why spiritual detective, because I really wanted to investigate what happened there. And then I said, that's not cool. Okay, that's not cool. There is some power there. We embody this. And we are being told that actually this power is either dangerous or slotty or not worthy, worthy of anything, when in fact there's a great power in the energy of a feminine, but in a full feminine, not this kind of purified feminine like Virgin Mary or Kuan Yin. The full spectrum feminine, and which is yes. our birthright. And to put this before we do a deep into your book, which I can't wait to do, I'd like to put this into context for the audience and share a little bit about your background, which you've alluded to. And of course, I've read about in your book. I think it's highly interesting how you were brought up in Poland, very Catholic background. But I'd like for you to give us a little more detail about that and how you experienced your own femininity and also the female archetypes when you were growing up? Thank you for this question, because it is actually at the beginning of my book, because I was brought up, it's really a strange story, in a very Catholic Poland, that stage pretty much, most people were Catholic, and also very communist Poland at the same time, because the system was communist, were very devout Catholics for years. So was my family as well. So it is quite interesting, because I saw the polarity of this. It could be either this or, or that. And some people try to kind of balance it because in truth, most of pe people were both, right? Let's say they had to somehow live in a communist system, but they also had this faith. But I also knew that none of them is an answer just intellectually, e even as a little girl. So I was a strange little girl. But I used to go to these beautiful Baroque churches, which, uh, yes, if you grew up in Europe, you probably remember them, or even Gothic cathedrals. There was a Gothic cathedral, but I used to go to this uh, beautiful Baroque church in my hometown. And, and I saw these beautiful images of Virgin Mary, and I used to buy her Frazian spring and put flowers there. But I also saw that there was this other divine feminine, which is Mary Magdalene, and she was always in a side nave of the church and she was very close to the teacher as I would call him now Jesus and that there was some kind of very deep relationship there but it was somehow shamed so I had a sense and I didn't go into it for many years but I had a sense that there is some mystery in the story that is bigger than the story that we are shown like in the Bible or what you hear in a church or from your minister, but they actually represent some much bigger archetypes. Right? The story, the story is much deeper. And also I, as a young girl, started to feel the beauty of Eros. And it was, for me, it was very innocent. I didn't feel that there was anything wrong with it. And the only reason why I didn't use it for quite a long time because where I grew up, once you first boyfriend, there are no contraceptives, you get pregnant and you march into the church. And I always knew that I didn't want that for myself. So I learned to hold it. But I was very much aware of erotic energy within me and the beauty mm. of this energy. And I didn't share this with anyone for a very long time because no one around me seem to feel the same way about it. Do you think they did not feel the same way or had they learned so well to suppress it from others, to not show it? 
Now I think they probably learn to suppress it, learn to suppress it because I talked to many women and I said, oh, I didn't have any experiences. And <laughs> oh, maybe, but we dismiss it. And in fact, when I was writing academically about spiritual experiences, it's amazing how people and ourselves really, we dismiss something because it's out of this kind of three-dimensional reality. And we don't know how to place it until we really open up to this. So we think, oh, it was just a weird thing. Yeah. And it's one of the most important, one of the most powerful energies, something that's tried to our, tied to our true essence. And we're hardly ever taught how to connect with it and how to use it, which is astounding, infuriating, and ridiculous, which is also why I... I'm so drawn to your book. You wrote an incredible book, Joanna, The Other Goddess, Mary Magdalene and the Goddesses of Eros and Secret Knowledge. And in that book, talking about suppressing, you actually explore the, which has been suppressed through the ages, the Eros, the concept of Eros, and which you and I and others who are seekers like ourselves know one of the most powerful forces in the universe and something that is absolutely fundamental to well-being, to truly being and expressing yourself. And as you explore this concept of eros, you actually you do a deep dive. My, my brain just expanded so much. It was amazing. It's this lineage of goddesses that all stand for the evolutionary power of female sexuality. And so before we talk about the goddess in the title of your book, Mary Magdalene, I would like to talk about something you already mentioned before. I'd like to talk about Eros and sexuality. You also mentioned there's a difference between Eros and sexuality. Before we go into that difference, I'd like to dissect a bit the fact that there's so much darkness and shame associated with sexuality, even in our open and liberal Western societies. In your opinion, in your experience, why is this? And where did it start? I think it started, yes, yeah, so we would have to dive in into goddesses, but in a moment, let's wait a moment. I think that what Western society is doing, and it's not better in the East at all, they just suppress it. And they maybe worship the goddesses, but they mistreat women terribly, right? Mm -hmm. So you cannot pray to a goddess and mistreat your girlfriend or a wife, right? That's oxymoron. But, or women in general. But in our Western societies, we allow the lowest level of sexuality. So basically, in fact, we just focus, and I think it's a conscious focus by someone. I don't want to get conspiratorial because I'm very careful here, but something is going on. Okay, something is going on. I just noticed when I was writing the book that they encourage sexuality, but it's lowest animalistic. And I don't want to insult animals because animals are innocent when they make love, right? But the worst type of sexuality, almost because it is a trap. We all, and I write about it, erotic trap or very, and also the romantic trap. The trap, when you fall into this trap and eventually you start to explore the dark side of sexuality. But when you go this path, there is an end to it. Because not only you invite like dark forces, but also you cannot have enough and you cannot get the high that you originally had because you stray away. And that's the kind of side effect, which is negative without going into morality of that. So this yeah. is that end. Even if you're looking for ecstasy, this is a dead end. For some reason, all 
media, mainstream media especially, but also conspiratorial sites, what they focus on, misuse of sexuality for dark magic and so on. So everybody seemed to be focused on this dark side of sexuality. And this is not to deny that it doesn't exist. It is just an aspect of sexuality. For example, like with anything, you can... If you really want to, you can probably use a solar power for a bad end. You know what I mean, right? So this is a big mystery. Why everybody's obsessing about it? And in (laughs) fact, I was told if you wrote about it, your book would be more popular. And I said, but I, but this is completely wrong. And I think. This is just one aspect of sexuality. Exactly. And I think this is so crucial to point out. A great example is a large part of mainstream porn. I don't want to demonize porn. However, the kind of sex that is very, on a very base level, animalistic sex, which again, nothing wrong with it as an aspect of sex. However, we are fed this as in this is the totality of sex. And that's where things get twisted. If you take a small fragment of something that is not the whole, but you tell people this is the whole, this is what it is. That's when things go really dark and wrong. That's where I think a lot of our problems also come from on societal related to sex. Yeah, I absolutely agree with this. So it's just one aspect of sexuality. And also because Tantra, if I just can Mm -hmm. digress for a moment, is and most esoteric traditions actually, they stay away from morality, which turns off some people because they think, oh, what about this? What about that? But, But it is not about moral judgment. It is if you look for a trans for transcendence or even for sexual ecstasy, you're not going to get it this way. Or maybe you get it a little bit then and then it goes away because you're perverting energy, which is actually pure. Yeah. And again, I as I said, I repeat myself, I don't want to be conspiratorial, but this energy was always directed, consciousness was always directed to the darkness of this energy or it's just unworthy or slotty. And also this energy was always somehow connected with being a woman. And therefore, mm. women who carried this energy were also demeaned. Yes. And, and I think that this comes either from some evil agenda or just fear, because this energy is so powerful and it's unexplored that people are afraid, oh, what does it mean? So maybe I'm afraid to go there. But I think there may be a little bit more of that than that. Absolutely. And just a simple example, because sex or sexuality gets demeaned and expressed at such a very base level in the mainstream, let's just take the example of a strip club. Now, if the women dancing and performing there would be beloved and celebrated like goddesses, guess what? Then all the negative and dark and abusive elements would not be able to happen in these environments as they often do, where people just get coerced or treated poorly. And then we as a society would probably, whole families would enjoy going there because, hey, we are celebrating the female in its sensual form. But it's not so. We demean it. We oftentimes demean the women who find work there, which I think is completely not justified, the root of this is, though, that we have a really twisted relationship to sexuality and the way it's expressed in mainstream media also yes. does nothing to help that at all. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And look, just to lighten up the conversation, there's nothing wrong with just great raw sex. Not and, at all. Know, we, we all had it, but it is, was nice. And then you think, what am I going to talk to him about? Like, it's just uh, the connection is not created there. It was just what it was. And there shouldn't be yeah. any judgment about that. And when it, it's not dark, just because you're, it happened and you enjoyed it. But it's not necessarily sexual ecstasy and it's not as necessarily transcendental, but it's also not dark. Yeah. But it, it has its right to exist as an aspect. And so, and so I would like to talk about what you also focus on in the beginning of your book. You write about the difference between eros and sexuality. And what I find, found so interesting, what really resonated was where you spoke about the purely sexual being in essence selfish and that mm -hmm. eros is the desire to know and experience the other. Can you yes. do a deeper dive into that for us, Joanna, please? Thank you for this question because sexuality, again, nothing wrong with it, but it's, it's just a very primal on the, on the lowest level thing. You're looking for a release if you're a man and you want to get laid as a woman, basically. I'm using this way, right? And it is nothing wrong with it, but this is all that there is into this, yes. And it's basically about satisfying my own urge. When Eros is very subtle, and Eros really, and this is when the division between sexuality and mm, spirituality ends for me, Eros is seeking a deeper connection with yourself and with the other. It's just not enough. This is this kind of satisfying of a primal urge is not enough. It is actually almost using this attraction for this experience of complete transcendence with another. Now I had beautiful examples from some of my readers and I often quote this particular example because this is, can I tell you the story about this woman and this man who actually experienced the, what I call erotic rapture? They were attached otherwise to other people and they had a brief encounter, but there was a certain realization, like we've known each other forever, they didn't know about the mundane lives, right? And they allow themselves this, themselves this one night, so to speak, where not only they had the out-of-body experience when making love, right? But they had a sense of complete connection of knowing each other, but also knowing deeper themselves. Like I, they use the, the other became a natural mirror for the woman and for the man. So this is what Eros actually is. Eros can open your being to transcendence, right? To the spirit. And in fact, very often in Gnostic literature, they are talking about nous, which is the connection between uh, mundane and the cosmic consciousness, so to speak. I'm oversimplifying for the sake of a discussion. And very often people just intellectualize, maybe nous is this, maybe nous is that. But I think eros can be nous as well, which means it just, it is basically this door opening to higher consciousness, basically. And suddenly you can realize that there is much more than this three-dimensional world. And you just experience it through eros, through erotic rapture, through this desire to be more and explore more. And somehow this other person triggered this in you and vice versa. You have a, a beautiful quote at the very beginning of your book by, I'm hoping I pronounce his name correctly, Abhinava Gupta, a 10th century yes. tantric philosopher. And the quote is, that which produces bliss 
should be used in worship since it ravishes the heart. So he's speaking about erotic rapture here, right? Yes, he's talking about erotic rapture. And he's a very interesting man who actually comes from the lineage of many women, <laughs> as I discovered this, because he's, a, as you said, 10th century a philosopher and of Kashmir Shaivism. And he was like a combination of Einstein and Descartes, he knew everything what was known to to be known in his times. And he wrote many books. He had many disciples and he was a Brahmin and he came from a very powerful family. But he also practiced Tantra and also wrote the work called Tantra Loka. And then chapter 29, which I studied, he describes this Tantric ritual in kind of encoded way, right? In an encoded way. And basically he says, and basically the pure Tantra, not what we focus on nowadays, can, yeah, can, can we, or not can, even the Taoist Tantra, which is a completely different, has a completely different focus. They say that it cre creates this bliss. Whatever opens you up to cosmic consciousness is the way. And Eros can be also this way. Mm -hmm. Also, he says that, uh, and I say it somewhere in the book, quote from him, you know, that after that, you'll be walking like gods and goddesses on earth. And why? Because it is all, when you have this kind of transcendental experience, and lots of people had, whether erotically or otherwise through a ritual or had a spontaneous awakening, you pretty much cannot live your normal life. And that's why mo most of us freak out because it is something unforgivable, unforgettable. And at the same time, it completely deconstructs your current life because your belief system completely changes and actually your reality, external reality changes. So this is exactly said it perfectly. That this basically eros is used for cracking you open completely. And what is more personal? What is more intimate than erotic experience? Mm. Right? So if you can get it through prayer, if you can get it through meditation, if you can get it through devotion or some even self-punishing like ascetism, I don't endorse it, but it's been popular for a long time. Imagine if you could use eros for this, because this is, there's nothing more intimate. An erotic connection. And yeah. why does it have to be ugly when it actually lots of people have experience of transcendence and complete transcendence that they completely awake? Yes. Eros can be a bridge to the sublime. And mm -hmm. whether it's something you experience just by yourself with your partner or partners, you know, what, mm. whatever, yes. however you choose to live your life. And this is something that. I personally feel is divine. And again, it is our birthright to experience it. So something I would like to just have you illuminate for us again, because I think in the audience, there's probably a few people who are curious about this too. You talked about the differences between the type of Tantra that, for example, Abhinava Gupta represented, embodied, and also that you I think you studied it or studied parts of it, the Tantra that mainly we get told about or sold here. I'm talking, for example, about LA, if you go and have a Tantra class somewhere. And then the Taoist Tantra. Could you tell us the essence or also the differences between these three? Okay, so it's actually quite simple. So first of all, the original Tantra is, and it was actually started by a woman sage, and Babinava Gupta just put it in writing, but this teaching is much older. 
than this. And women yoginis were tra- transmitting it orally, so to speak, in through for centuries until Abhinava Gupta and his disciples decided to write it down, right? Because eventually women had no rights, right? So they couldn't actually write it down. But this tantra is exactly what I was saying, that it is in, it's not immoral, but it's amoral. What does it mean? That whatever creates the opening, the rapture, is the pathway to bliss, to co- cosmic consciousness. So it's not about, and sometimes they say, it's not that you cannot have it with your beloved partner, but it may not happen with your beloved. It may happen somewhere on the side of us. Why? Because... And I'm writing about it in my book because it's a big confusion about it. It is because it, you can have it with your beloved, but it has to be disconnected from your mundane things about what do I want from this relationship? Is he satisfied with me? Am I satisfying him? Am I performing? Are we, is he going to call me after that? Should I call, like this should be, if you can put it away on a side, you can have it with your partner. For most people, it happens outside the significant relationships. And this is when people freak out. And this is different from Neo-Tantra. And not because you, the person has to be a stranger, but because you can be completely open and authentic. You don't play any parts. You have no expectations. And basically, even in a tantric ritual that Abhinava Gupta describes, only chosen disciples were allowed to participate in this ritual simply because you have to have a commitment, so to speak, but not like anal retentive commitment, openness. But what you want is transcendental experience. You don't want him to marry you. You don't want her to have your children and have a mortgage together. It is just about commitment to the transcendental experience. And for some people, it is Moral, so it's not wrong, but it's just like oh, morality doesn't count. What about infidelity? And there are legitimate questions, but for a classic tantric, there are not questions at all. This is where it's done for transcendent to experience transcendental consciousness. However, and I just want to, because some people are probably going to say, ah, Joanna, but and we are right, it is being used now for centuries by male gurus, and that was a very, and sometimes not even gurus, using this beautiful feminine energy for their own sake and then discarding women. And that's not cool, because this is, you don't respect the goddess, you don't expect, you don't respect the energy that you actually want. And most of them, trust me, because I was around gurus, don't get what they're supposed to get out of it because of a disrespect. And later, maybe I can talk about what women should do, because we have to take responsibility as well for this as well. Now, so Neo-Tantra is basically how can we have almost a more spiritual sex and maybe improve our sexual life and maybe have a closer relationship with each other and maybe even have some experience, spiritual experience. And there's nothing wrong with it, but this is not a classic Tantra. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, Taoist Tantra is very often about longevity, yes. using this energy for longevity. And for example, that's why semen retention and so on. When in classic Tantra, keep it, uh, hold it or ejaculate. If you don't ejaculate right away as a man, it is because you want a woman to have a time to get together with you, right? So to this higher level of consciousness through different techniques. But it's not about longevity because it is so transcendental. It is basically you are one with cosmic consciousness and eventually you return to cosmic consciousness. Why bother whether you live 90 or 100 years because you ejaculate or not? So it's a completely different, it's actually complete commitment, classical Tantra, to live in cosmic consciousness, I'm using kind of Western terminology, in transcendent state, 
it's not about having a long and healthy life and it's not about having a lovely relationship with your partner. Mm. So it's very radical in this premise. Mm. Now, if I just can go back to what I was just saying about gurus abusing women like that, it is, I believe that women, as women, will have to take this responsibility back because this is what every spiritual practice of any essence will teach you. So I will, because I observe it, I was a part of a spiritual community myself and then I learned some things. And then I thought, okay, so why? And it's not women blaming, I just want to make sure. But I just say that why do we allow for this? And in fact, the thing, and if I'm being completely honest, I hope nobody hates me now, when I observed it in that particular community, it turned out to be a problem for women only once they realized that they are not the only ones. So basically, that were other women with whom the guru was having this, this sort of relationship. So I think why women allow for this? Why do you need this external masculine power to validate you? Like I am the chosen one, right? Because he marries me or because my guru sleeps with me. So I believe we have to claim this power. I am Sundari. Goddess Sundari carry this huge erotic power and it is up to me whom I give this power to. Yes, right? you do not need someone to choose you. You do not need mm. this power, quote, from the outside to elevate you. You need to raise the power inside of you. You choose yourself and you rise. However, it is easier said than done because we are you know, brainwashing, right? Yes. So don't blame anybody, but I'm saying from now on, we have to claim this. We have to claim this rather than other people trying to take it away from women without respecting women at the same time. And once they do it, they actually don't get that high. They don't get this transcendent experience because, because they, what in Tantra would be called, they disrespected the Shakti, right? yeah. which is the divine feminine energy. So why would she give it to you? The expanded mind, the yes. experience of cosmic consciousness when... You don't honor her. Yes. And the woman who carries carries her. You don't honor her. You do not deserve it. Beautifully right. said, Joanna. Yes. Thank you for illuminating that for us. So I see, and this is something that's really, you talk about a lot and you unveil for us in your book, the resistance of our culture, not only now, but dating back millennia, the resistance, we resist the union of spirituality and eros or spirituality and sexuality, but let's use this to also contain eros. So you explore this and your protagonist, so to speak, and who's also in the title is Mary Magdalene. I'd like to know from you whether you believe that Mary Magdalene was historical and also, if so, who was the real Mary Magdalene? Okay, that's a fantastic question and thank you for this. We will never know who was she because unless you find the ticket, like people sometimes ask me, did Jesus go to India? And I said, unless you find a ticket, aeroplane ticket, we, but we have some traces, we have some traces. So I don't, let me think I'm going to explain this. So first of all, maybe I'll go right from the beginning. I explore the possibility that Mary Magdalene is an embodiment of archetypes that existed long before her. I don't know how open-minded your audience is. And I myself ask myself a question because although I'm trained as an academic, I become more and more alternative as I'm exploring this. Or maybe she's more than just an embodiment of an archetype, but maybe she's actually that energy or this person 
this archetype that is actually showing up through the ages to teach us the lesson. So for example, I was looking into some ancient Sumer, right? And there's this goddess Nimna, which, you know, is and some people call it the Anunnaki gods, right? So she's like a mother goddess, but she's not really a mother goddess. What, when you look at the representation of Ninma, she sits on the throne, okay? So she is like embodies a divine consciousness, right? She sits on the throne. Next to her is the tree of life, which is understood as a portal, so to speak, between dimensions, but between also death and life and basically the creation itself, Behind her is an upright serpent. It's quite interesting when serpent represents often wisdom, but also in modern times, people say it could be Kundalini energy because it's awakened energy, which very often comes also through erotic awakening. Okay. That we can discuss also. Or some people say it looks also like DNA helix. On the other side of the tree, there is a man, male figure. This goddess, Nimna, extends has a fruit or an egg in her hand, just like Mary Magdalene, and extends this gift of this, let's call it cosmic egg, to the man who represents humanity. So again, she's the bestower of this wisdom. She's the bestower of awakening, a serpent behind her, because even if you look into Hindu mythology as well, the coiled serpent is an awakened serpent, right? And Kunda, awakened Kundalini is the upright serpent and she bestows this gift of something which is like a fruit or a cosmic egg there are different interpretations for this to a man who also represents humanity so she's in control of the tree of life and knowledge which can move her between different aspects of reality really she's the awakened one and she bestows this gift to the man and then when we go through different mythology, like Inanna, which becomes very popular nowadays as well, and you're going to interview, I know about it as well. She also is very often represented with a serpent in her hand. And the serpent is supposed to represent, again, the portal between realities. It's quite interesting, right? She is also the one that goes on the underground journey, and eventually there's a story of a man there and so on. And then the goddess Isis, the same way, is represented the same way. And also she's Inanna, associated with the story of resurrection of her husband. And Isis carries the Ankh, right? Which is basically the cross, which is the tree. cross represents the tree of life and wisdom. And this kind of circular thing around it is really a serpent. It's just a serpent is on the tree, right? So all of these goddesses... All of these goddesses are actually carrying the same message. They have the power of resurrection. They have the power of some gift to humanity, which I call goddess consciousness later in the book. And they predate Mary Magdalene. So archetypically, she fulfills the same criteria, so to speak. She's represented in a very similar way. Especially when I went to Jerusalem in the Church of St. Mary Magdalene, it was a Russian Orthodox church. She's represented with an egg in her hand, extending it to humanity. And of course, there are medieval interpretations of this about she goes to an emperor and it grows with resurrection. Is it possible? And I know this medieval story, but I think that the story is much older, right? Because it actually starts with Nimna, which is now uh, at least 4,500 years ago. So the story of an egg about Mary Magdalene that we know nowadays is just basically a medieval approximation of the story, in my opinion. So this is one version of Mary Magdalene. She either carries the archetype or has the energy or is the same actually goddess energy 
thing. But Mary Magdalene, personally, I do believe she was a historical person, and this is maybe it really gets hissing for people. In fact, I had a debate with another scholar who believes that she didn't exist. And, and I think they were looking for like a scholarly debate, but I get really passionate about it because I think it is total BS when he was saying she's not, uh-huh. no, she's real, but she's not. I think, okay, I've, they are together. Either none of this is real or they are both real. And I do believe that she's a historical person. And if we, in, this is a complex thing. So I'm just trying to organize my thinking about it. First of all, there is some evidence that she was half Egyptian and half Jewish. And that's part of the reason in esoteric traditions. And it is part of the reason why she was looked down upon because she was not a pure blood, so to speak. She was a hybrid. Her father was an Egyptian and he married a Jewish woman, right? So we know, for example, from some esoteric tradition that 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 was the case. And that her father actually had a connection with the Temple of Isis because he came from Alexandria. Now, later when I was searching what happened to Mary Magdalene after the event of crucifixion, and I believe that events are both mythical and real, that these events remanifest themselves to teach us a lesson, right? So it wasn't a unique experience, Jesus, Mary Magdalene, but the experience like Isis and Osiris and so on, and Inanna and the Mutsi and so on, they are just repetition of the same symbolism that some people embody historically for us or some energy symbolic symbolically for us. So when I was ex- exploring what happened to Mary Magdalene after the crucifixion, to check whether it is possible, I, was, I came across a few things. For example, I have learned that I was thinking, okay, where would she go? Because we know that even if she went to southern France, which some people believe she did, it says even in the Golden Legend that talks about southern France, they said that for 15 years, it was 15 years after she went to southern France. So... She probably wouldn't stay in Palestine because everybody was perse- persecuted. So I have learned that in, I've, if I were Mary Magdalene, I would go to ancient Alexandria because it was a spiritual and intellectual center of the universe at the time. Also, her father was supposed to be from Alexandria as well. Also, there was a group of philosophers and spiritual healers and called Therapete in Alexandria that invited women to their circles, which was very unusual in those days. Right. And also they were in contact with a scene in Palestine and very often Jesus and Mary Magdalene and John the Baptist especially were connected with this particular Gnostic group in mm-hmm. the scenes. Right. So they were in connection with them. So I thought that she probably would go to Alexandria because this is where she would be allowed to teach. And there was a group of people that actually accepted spiritually and intellectually gifted women. When you mm-hmm. talk about, just to interject, when you talk about she would be allowed to teach again there. What are the theories about or what have you learned during your research? What are some traces that you might have come across about the role that she played amongst Jesus and the disciples? Okay, that's very good because when we are, I'm just digressing again, when we are going to Gnostic Gospels, what are Gnostic Gospels just to start yes. from the beginning? When the, gospel, when the Bible was written, there were many Gospels. There was a whole plethora of Gospels floating around the Mediterranean Sea. And only in the fourth century, in the Council of Nicaea, the bishops of, from around of the Mediterranean Sea met to decide which Gospels go into the canon, so to speak. Some Gospels were way too radical. And the Constantine and the emperor actually decided, okay, if Christianity is going to be state religion, it has to be like it always was. We have to have temples, we have to have worship, we have 
to have a scripture that doesn't offend anyone. So actually, Wisconsin lasted for over a year and many bishops left because it was decided that only four Gospels go there. But in fact, there were many more Gospels. And these other Gospels were discovered primarily, mostly in 1945 in Nakh Hammadi, Gnostic documents, which is especially Gospel of Thomas, which is the most popular and so on, and Gospel of Philip. But even about in late 19th century, there was another Gospel discovered also in Egypt, which connects to my area story. And it is the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Okay. What is the, and, can you give us the essence of that gospel? I know that's probably a very simplified question to something that's very complex. But yes, I'm very happy to do this. In this gospel, Mary Magdalene is the main disciple of Jesus. Okay. In the first part, so I'm just going through some parts of this, right? Because otherwise we have a different <laughs> program on the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. After Jesus is not there anymore, the disciples come to her and say, Sister, tell us what the teacher shared with you, but didn't share with us. And she gracefully agrees, right? To teach them, right? And she starts to teach them about basically four climates or let's say four levels of existence. So one is like just material existence. One is that there's some psychological existence on top of this. One is when the noose is very important. You remember I mentioned noose before. Noose is the hook between your reality and the cosmic consciousness, right? And in fact, she says that Jesus taught her that noose is the most important for you to evolve. Without noose, nothing happens. Without the hook to higher consciousness. If you are not willing to accept that there is a higher consciousness, there is no connection between you and higher consciousness. And then there is Numa, which is basically the cosmic consciousness. And then this, the fourth climate also has seven different elements. It's very esoteric. Seven different elements, basically you have to create them so you can be permanently in the state of being in conscious, in a cosmic consciousness, the way she and Jesus were. Okay. And then at the end of his gospel, Peter, who is always disliked by the Gnostics, he's like always shown as the one that is least intelligent. He says, he says, I don't believe this. How come my teacher shared this with her and not with us? And then another disciple says, basically, keep quiet, Peter. You know that he loved her more than us. Okay. So this is like the essence of this. And all in, the, in all Gnostics document, Gnostic documents in which Mary Magdalene is mentioned, and she's also mentioned in another one, Pistis Sophia, which is Q, questions and answers with Jesus. And she asked 39 out of 42 questions. Right. And he's teaching basically a story of ascension. And what she's teaching basically in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene is how do we ascend mm -hmm. still embodied. Right. So and what, is, what are the vehicles or what is the vehicle of ascension? Are we talking about what you also mentioned at another place in your book about sexual alchemy? Yes, sexual alchemy is there as well, but it's not mentioned in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. It is the bridal charm or so to speak is mentioned in the Gospel of Philip. So this part is there, but not in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. It just says that he loved her more than us. Mm -hmm. And in the Gospel of Philip, the disciples say, the teacher kissed her off and on, and the part of the papyrus where he kissed her on is lost, so we don't know where he kissed her. And the disciples say, teacher, why do you love her more than us? So this is like a, the same phrase, but in another 
mm-hmm. Gnostic Gospel. And also in the Gospel of Philip, she's called Koinoinos, and Koinoinos means an intimate partner. And this is when I, I disagree with some famous writers like Ma- Margaret Starbert, for example, right? And all of the people who say they were married because he was a rabbi and so on. I think that he was a very rebellious rabbi and he didn't probably follow the... And I also think that they had a much more of a tantric relationship, so to speak. They were evolved beings because she was not called really the wife. It is translated into wife. Koinoinos is somebody with whom you have a very close connection, probably erotic connection. Okay, so they were partners. And also to give another twist to this wonderful story is that some people believe that Simon Magus or Magus, which was a, is more of a tantric version of a teacher, and some people believe that he's actually a more radical version of Jesus, so that Simon Magus is actually Jesus, he had a partner called Helen with whom he had a tantric relationship, really. And some Gnostic teachers, Simon and Helen, are the same people as Mary Magdalene and Jesus, except that one is like a family edition and more than the other one is more like a Rolling Stones edition because there's actually tantric connection there. So it is very complex, but in all the, I don't want to get too specific here, but in, in Gnostic, she is the beloved disciple. She is the one that is gifted the esoteric teachings and the highest teachings of, of Jesus by Jesus, and she is his intimate partner. And uh, you mentioned before, so thank you for giving us this perspective. You mentioned before that, so she, and most likely she went to Alexandria because that was a place where she also would be invited to and allowed to teach. And so she would teach what you just shared with us, the essence of that, And after the time in Alexandria, she may have gone to south of France. That is just to close the timeline of what we know or believe could have happened with Mary Magdalene. Yes, but if I can add one more thing about her, when I was looking who she could be in Alexandria, because really this was the only place when she would be allowed to teach. Like Mm -hmm. historically, it's not just imagination. Any woman, but Mary Magdalene. So I was doing some research. And of course, some people know that in the first century, Alexandria, there was a woman called Mary the Jewess or Mary the Prophetess who was an alchemist who was specializing in spiritual alchemy, which is the art of ascension, which Mm -hmm. Gospel of Mary Magdalene teaches. And she is a historical figure. We know this. So I checked it. So it's, she's a historical figure. And it's quite interesting that the person who mentioned her first was another alchemist, Egyptian alchemist called Zosimus from the third century, who lived in Akmin, which then was called Panapolis. And this is where the Gospel of Mary Magdalene was found. So I think mm-hmm. there are just tenuous connections, but this is all we have. So if she went to France and there's a strong, but can I stress again, medieval tradition, which is much later tradition, that she went to Fr- southern France after that. And there may be something to this because this kind of traditions are there for a reason. And for example, in Provence, near Marseille, there's a like early medieval tradition, like 900s, 700s even, you know, about Mary Magdalene coming to France after 15 years being somewhere, I believe, in Alexandria. And also, quite interestingly, in one of the churches, they have a skull of a woman, but they believe it is a skull of Mary Magdalene and National Geographic did their kind of DNA and everything testing on this. And it is a, a, a woman from the Middle East, but the church didn't allow to carbon test it on how old the skull is. So, <laughs> so there is something to this tradition. Yes. yes, there is something to this tradition and quite likely she maybe went to France 
but this tradition is a little bit more polite. So it really complies with the Catholic version. So she went there on the arrival. She astounds everyone with her beauty and her erudition, spiritual erudition. And then she goes to a cave because she doesn't want to teach. And she meditates in a cave for 30 years, which is a choice she could make. But it sounds a little bit too close to the Catholic version of silencing a woman. Yes. Because women, at least in Catholicism, still not allowed to teach. But it is a strong tradition and I have nothing against it. However, not maybe sold on this as some people are. If I think that spiritual experience is important. So going to Southern France and connecting with Mary Magdalene helps you to connect with Mary Magdalene. I would certainly advise on this, right? Because it is a strong possibility. Wherever you can connect with the energy, the wisdom or the knowledge, in essence, it's opening up ourselves and then connecting to the energy. And if in some places we feel that stronger than others, that's totally legit. I'm also all, all for, I really, I really was fascinated with the part where you describe and which you also mentioned before that Mary Magdalene was often depicted with an egg in her hand or also in a skull and mm-hmm. how that is a, that's a thread that runs through the visual, visual visualizations of these, this lineage of goddesses that you also mentioned before. And you also mentioned, for example, Inanna now is really regaining popularity. Do you see that there is a lineage of goddesses that is just gaining momentum again or resurfacing now in our collective consciousness and also the way we connect with spirituality in the present? I think so. And absolutely, and when Inanna has, Mary Magdalene has her time, and now Inanna is also coming up with, I believe it's one and the same goddess personally, right? Mm-hmm. Isis, which has been around also for a long time, and, and Nimna. So the, it's definitely a lineage. And for me, they represent the same, basically, a feminine energy. But this energy also representation of the skull goes to the east and Kali. There are many similarities with some representations of Kali and Mary Magdalene, except that it's a more radical tradition. It is a little bit like with Helen of Tyre, Mary Magdalene is Helen of Tyre, the partner of Simon Magus, you remember? Because Kali is actually goddess of uh, radical spiritual transformation, right? And she's often portrayed with the skull, and she's also in red, and it's more different aspect of Kali, which is also extremely erotic because Kali is in a relationship, so to speak, with God Shiva. In fact, she ravishes him when he she finds him dying on a battlefield and she's only fury because all of the injustice going on the, in the world, right? And she's destroying everybody. And then she sees Shiva lying on the ground and she, she sees his beautiful eyes and it's Tantra, right? So he still managed to have an erect penis, right? She starts riding him and through this love and erotic rapture, she transforms and then she transforms into the, this erotic goddess Sundari. And also she's in perfect union with Shiva. So the masculine and feminine again meet. Except that it's a more, I would say, maybe more powerful and more erotic story than the one that we are offered with the story of Jesus in Mary Magdalene, which is the real story. But I think it's like made really very polite. Yes, it's been really sanit- it's been really sanitized. And I love the uh, the example you just shared with Kali, who of course is this fierce goddess with the garland of skulls around her neck and the long tongue sticking out. There she is unapologetically fierce, so to speak. Yes. Not that she has to apologize for anything being a goddess in the first place. 
But I think that this resurgence of these goddesses and the divine feminine is so important, especially in now in our times, because through this, we can bring balance into the world. And if we look at how these goddesses and also at the same time, female sexuality in the past, whether it's millennia ago, have been hijacked or even modern day times. If you look at, for example, the entertainment industry, in, in your book, you actually use a great example for how Afro Aphrodite, who was actually also originally also a goddess of war and all powerful, her power got taken away and diminished until she became, in a sense, also humiliated and mm -hmm. abused. And you liken Marilyn Monroe, for example, mm -hmm. a modern day... Aphrodite. Aphrodite? Yes, yeah. this empowered Aphrodite. Yes, so definitely. if you just can say, if we are moving closer to the end of this conversation, that this is exactly, I completely agree with what you just said. We really have to reclaim it in whatever form, this powerful, erotic, and very deeply wise energy that we carry by we women. And then this energy also creates a completely different form of consciousness. And I think we really need to embody this different form of consciousness for collective reasons. Because our civilization, in my opinion, and we may disagree here, went too much in the other direction. We are talking about biohacking before, before we started this conversation and so on, on air. And I think that it is a dangerous path to go unless you fully embody your humanity, including your errors. Otherwise, we can easily into a form of AI or transhumanism, which I do not actually condone at all. I think that there is this lenient power in us, which is connected to er eroticism and to cosmic consciousness. And only then, if we choose so, we can cooperate with this higher level of technology and intelligence. I could but not otherwise, we are completely on the wrong track. Yes. And in fact, maybe we cutting ourselves completely from cosmic consciousness because we, like, for example, want to prolong our lives, which I understand, right? And technology may be a wonderful thing for this, but not if it actually disconnects us from divine potential. Yes, I could not agree more, Joanna. I think the technology, any other advancements that we're making in order for it to bear fruits that are nourishing and enriching for us individually and also collectively for the human family needs to be rooted in a deeply lived, embodied humanity and also a connection to the divine. And without that, we are just children running amok with toys we can't control. And can I just one more thing? Because I really like what Carl Jung said, the Swiss psychoanalyst whom I adore, who was talking about you cannot argue your shadow out of existence. You have to integrate your shadow. And you know, you can suppress this. And I think for some reason, and perhaps nefarious even reason, both the feminine and eros were argued out of existence. It's just not going to do anymore. It's coming up, even like with the Gnostic Gospels, with the worship of different goddesses. It really started with Isis and Mary Magdalene, now Inanna and Kali is big too. They just have to be integrated. They are not going to sit quietly anymore. And no. actually... They are necessary for our survival as species and our civilization. This is Absolutely. what I believe. There is no other but, way. And also, right. 
So let's embody this energy. Sorry, I interrupted you. Let's embody this energy because before we can act on it collectively, we have to individually embody this. 100%. And that's also one of the last questions I have for you about how we can do. But before, I want to also really underline something that you said prior in our conversation, that talking about this divine feminine energy, the goddess energy, is not saying anything against the masculine, the divine masculine. In fact, we're seeking balance. And when we talk about the patriarchy or as you also said before, it's not talking about the masculine. It's talking about an old and twisted system that has damaged not only women, but also men. And we see so in so many places in the world where people are trying to shake this off. We're looking at what's been happening in Iran for many months now, where it's also, if you want to look at it symbolically, freeing yourself from the headscarves, from the covering of your body, you're embodying the female, is also Eros trying to free itself from being subjugated by a twisted patriarchal system. So that being said, what advice can you give to our audience? What comes to the practicality of embracing the divine feminine, embracing the goddess within us, or connecting to goddess consciousness. How can we do that in our often really overwhelming, really busy lives? How can we get back in contact with this energy? I think it is like it is with every form of spiritual practice. There are many different ways. First of all, we have to find the space and time in a day, even 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes to start with, and then maybe one hour that we actually completely cut ourselves off from the mainstream narratives, <clears throat> because those narratives are demeaning us. Yes. And, and making simple choices such as what do you watch on Netflix? How is sexuality portrayed there? Do you feel that is aligned with this who you are? But before you can actually do this, you have to allow yourself a space and very often focusing on one archetype of a divine feminine or a goddess that appeals to you and meditate upon her. It is called Visio Divina, basically. So you incorporate her into your body. So having even an image of this goddess and meditating upon it and reading the stories, I love reading the stories about her. How did she embody her power? How did she embody the eros? And integrate it into your own life. And very, and then situations occur in your life when you can either go in the direction in which you always were going with your, especially with your sexuality, or you can say no, or we are doing it differently. This is, this doesn't honor me. But what I'm saying, and this is in opposition to what it's done in some country ashrams and so on. First, you have to embody this power yourself and you have to only yourself. Do not listen what the mainstream media is telling you about your body. What is the beautiful body? I went through this as well. And then I decided to screw this. I love my body. It's not like the girl on the cover magazine, but hey, do I have to be a... I don't even want to be on the cover of a magazine as that babe. So honor your body. Do a small thing every day for your body, for yourself. Invoke arrows. So I was doing some workshops with someone else and there are different methods. But for example, my method is in meditation even, invoking, for example, the goddess Sundari, which we didn't have a chance to, to, uh, to discuss here, or another erotic goddess, 
and call upon this beautiful energy, feminine erotic energy to descend upon you and feel it descending upon you. And you can call her name, like, for example, her full name is Tripura Lalita Sundari, Tripura Lalita Sundari, Tripura Lalita Sundari. It's like a mantra. And I can actually feel it now in my body because she's used (laughs) for me to call upon her. But it's just, and then once you feel it in you, just practice it. This doesn't honor, like, that doesn't honor who I am. Mm -hmm. Little choices. But that's almost like a separate conversation because (laughs) there are so many it's almost like a workshop. Yeah. Yes. But these are beautiful practices. So thank you for sharing those. And this has really been a fascinating conversation, Joanna, for people who'd like to learn even more about you and find more about your work. How can they do? Okay. Thank you so much for this. I think that the best way to to get to know me and the story of erotic goddess is connecting through the other goddess, because this is where this part of me, you very kindly call this part the protagonist, but actually this spiritual experiences through Eros are actually my own experiences, especially in the first part of the book before I launch upon different goddesses. So this is the best way. But I also have an Instagram page and I have a Facebook page, which is a public page, Dr. Joanna Kuyava, which is K-U-J-A-W-A. <laughs> People have a great difficulty pronouncing it. And I have a YouTube channel, right? So any of these ways, I love to connect with people and whatever works for you, right? Any of these channels would be fantastic. Thank you. And I will make sure to also put all of this in the show notes so everybody can just have the ease to click on the links. Joanna, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your insights with us. And I really recommend your book. I enjoyed reading it so much. It was stimulating, juicy, fascinating. The Other Goddess is really a great read. One of these, for me, one of these books that I couldn't, literally couldn't put down. So thank you for spending time with us and being a guest. And I certainly hope we'll have another opportunity to talk because there's so much more to talk about. I know. So I would love to do this. Likewise, Joanna, I wish you a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for joining us from Australia and stay in touch. Thank you. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 